0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Writer's Book Club podcast. I'm Michelle Barakoff, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. Now, if you're new here, let me tell you how the podcast works. Have you ever listened to an author interview and wish that you could jump inside the podcast and ask them a really specific writing craft question about one of their novels This is the podcast that lets you do that. So it's just like a regular book club. So at the start of the month, I tell you which book we're going to read. And I also give away a copy of the book. So there's always a competition every month to win a copy of the book. So we read the book and then you send in your questions. So I have a whole bunch of questions for the author, but I'd love to get your questions as well. So I incorporate those into the interview. I give you a little shout out. And then I do the interview with the author towards the end of the month, always around the 25th. So you've kind of got three weeks to read the novel and get your questions in to me and then I published the episode at the beginning of the following month. So it's a podcast for people who read books with a writer's eye and find themselves wishing they could ask the author questions. Things like, you know, why did you use flashbacks instead of a dual timeline? Or what was the most challenging scene to write and why? Or how did you develop the voice for that character? You know, it's just a no holds barred kind of podcast you can ask the author anything and you know authors love talking about writing craft so it's a great opportunity to learn so much more about writing So that's essentially how it all works. Now, this month, I'm excited to bring you my chat with the very talented novelist, memoirist and short story writer, Laurie Steed about his latest collection of short stories, Greater City Shadows. Now, we haven't covered short stories on the podcast, which is remiss of me because I really love reading them. I love that rapid plunge into a character's life at a pivotal moment in time. Short story writers are so clever, the way they use beautiful prose to so kind of efficiently immerse us in a story. And Laurie Steed is one of our country's best short story writers. In fact, he even judges other short stories for various prizes, so he really knows what he's talking about. And even if you don't write short stories, you're going to love this chat because what Laurie has to say about specificity and dialogue and narrative and character, it's relevant to any kind of writing, really. We also did a really kind of geeky deep dive on point of view. So first, third and second, which was fascinating. So keep an ear out for that. Now, one small fact check, I made a little boo-boo in the chat. I referred to Anthony Doer's memoir, which I vaguely said was about his time in Paris with his wife and child. In actual fact, it was about his time in Rome with his wife and twins. Anyway, I've put a link to that book called Four Seasons in Rome, which was fabulous, by the way, along with the book that Laurie mentions by Anthony Doer called Memory Wall. Uh, So that's all in the show notes. Uh, Yes, it is the Anthony Doerr that wrote All the Light We Cannot See. He has written these fabulous non-fiction books as well. So I urge you to go and check those out too. All right, let me tell you about Greater City Shadows. Here's the blurb. A man treads water in the Swan River, hoping to bring his friend back to shore. Three siblings gaze skyward, seeking a comet among the stars. A mother and daughter grapple with their fraught relationship, and an inappropriate birthday cake. Bushfires sweep a Perth suburb, while a woman, still burnt from previous relationship, lessens the divide between an individual and their community. In Greater City Shadows, Laurie Steed shines a light on the tremendous complexity and beauty of everyday relationships, from unrequited first love and burnt flames of the past to early parenthood stresses and tense friendships. These short stories are vulnerable and tender, a captivating collection reminding us that to be connected is to be human. Will Yeoman from Writing WA said of this collection think Nick Hornby at his best, yes, but also masters of the short story form such as Alice Munro. I mean, you cannot get better praise than that. I love that. All right, let me tell you a little bit about Laurie before we dive into the interview. Laurie Steed is a West Australian author whose fiction has been broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and published in anthologies including Best Australian Stories and award-winning Australian Writing. His debut novel, You Belong Here, was published in 2018 and shortlisted for the 2018 Western Australian Premier's Book Awards. His second book, Love Dad, is a memoir published in 2023, and his third book, the one we're discussing today, Greater City Shadows, won the 2021 Henry Handel Richardson Flagship Fellowship for short story writing from Varuna. I'm telling you, this man knows a thing or two about writing. Please enjoy this deep dive into short stories with the wonderful Laurie Steed. Laurie Steed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's a joy to be here. Thank you.
0: We have known each other for a couple of years now. And so I feel like we, and we've had some great writing chats. So I'm really so happy that we can bring this to the people. Oh,
1: I am too. And I'm particularly joyous to be talking about a short story collection. Uh, I know that that is uh, a comet in the sky of literature. So I'm really grateful for the chance to talk more about my work.
0: Oh, so am I also because I haven't covered short stories on the podcast before. So I cannot think of a better person than you to dive into short stories with because this collection, it just blew me away. It just has everything that I could ever want in a collection of stories. I absolutely loved it. Short stories seem to be having a real resurgence, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think think that there's something about the short story form, particularly in its ability to sort of pick up and come back to and work yeah. through sort of story by story. I know it's something that I've always been attracted to as a writer because I love this idea of creating these tiny worlds within a moment. And um so one of my friends she always says why the story, why now and why should I care? And I think about that a lot when I'm writing my short stories. I think if I'm tracking a moment, it better be pretty significant, the character in question. And so that underpinned a lot of the stories within Greater City Shadows. It was these moments where their hearts were broken or their hearts were made. It's that moment where they lost hope or they found hope again. And sometimes, even interestingly, to work on short stories for so long, what started to happen was that they would have their heart broken and their heart made. Within a single story or they'd lose hope and then find hope so i think one of the joys about writing greater city shadows was that these stories started to almost have more novelistic narrative arcs than might have previously been the case so uh there's a writer called anthony Doer who wrote a wonderful book called memory wall and i remember reading memory wall and just being blown away with the scope of his stories and thinking I can't do that, but what I will do is Laurie Steed's world of short fiction and the types of characters that come to me in in various human and uh, animal, mammal forms.
0: Yeah. So is this the Anthony Doerr that wrote All the Light We Cannot See? That's correct, yeah. He he has written quite a few nonfiction pieces as well. Mm -hmm. I think I remember reading a book of his about the time he and his wife with their child, I think, maybe lived in Paris or oh, wow, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. really like very, very good. Yeah. Have a look at look that one up as well. Um, so Laurie, tell us about the genesis of this collection and how it developed as a collection. I'm intrigued as to how you know what stories to put in, how you <laughs> even start with a collection like this.
1: Uh, it was funny. After releasing You Belong Here, I had this very strong feeling that I wanted to write a collection of stories. Uh, And so what originally came to mind was this idea of Nova, which was the title of the story collection, the very first point. And a Nova is a star where its brightness suddenly increases and then it diminishes back to its normal state again. So that was the sort of thematic underpinning of how I would write these stories. Uh, I realised that was a pretty niche idea to put into a book selling format or any sort of publishing format really. And so it sort of stayed as Nova for the longest time, and I started assembling these stories. I had my whiteboard, and I'd put intersecting themes and characters sort of types and things like that and try to create like a mixtape almost. And then what happened was uh, Short Edition, who do the story vending machines around the world, they had a call out for Perth writers for the first ever story vending machine in Perth, and the story came to me called Greater City Shadows, which starts off the collection. And it was really interesting how much I loved the deep dive into Perth at that time and the types of emotion that comes up when one thinks of Perth in my life, uh, which is the sort of love, loss and longing, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. And so at that point, uh, a good friend of mine had said, with Nova, it seems like you're trying to hedge your bets a bit in terms of where these stories are set and the types of stories you're choosing what if you were to lean a little more into this idea of what a city is like and the way people interact within the city? Uh, and so I did that, and the deal with that was that I had to be more vulnerable because the more I was setting it in places I remembered, the more I was anchoring it in feelings that I remembered or even just people that I've known and loved over the years. And so it was a really, it kind of became like an interactive uh, freewheeling album, I guess, of a city and the man who lived there. So characters were formed and one necessarily tweaks and twists uh, things to make it more fictional. Um, and, yeah, it sort of started to become, I guess, this book of hope, which was quite surprising and quite beautiful. And it was written alongside Love Dad, which was my memoir about being a dad and having my father. And so there are some nice little sort of touchstones between the two books.
0: I noticed that too, definitely. <laughs> I, as I was reading some of the stories, there was definitely a tone back to Love Dad, but even to your novel, you belong here.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was David Foster Wallace who said, um, you know, of course, you always end up becoming yourself. Yeah. And so it doesn't really matter how many books I write, there will be these echoes of me throughout. Um, but hopefully, some echoes of others too. I think it would be a pretty sad world if we only ever wrote of our own interests and obsessions and never got curious about how people make up their own truths and their realities yeah. as well.
0: Agree, agree. So, Laurie, how does a short story start for you? Does it start with an idea, a character?
1: Yeah, mostly characters. Uh, I've sort of spent a lot of time people watching and out in the world. And a game that uh, myself and my wife often play is when we're sitting at a cafe, we'll start the story for a person at a table on the other side of the cafe and we'll work out what their fears are, what their motivations are, and just create a story. And so generally that's how it occurs. So if you take a story like the butterfly fish inspired by a particular character, in my world, uh, and yet sometimes to appreciate or to understand a character more, uh, you need to put them in a different context or take them out of that space. And so what was really interesting about the Butterfly Fish was that there was this sort of, I don't know, almost joyce and urge the moment I started talking about this character in a totally different setting. So the whole prose is quite different from pretty much every other story, in the collection so it's interesting how writing gives us wings sometimes to sort of really go into different territory and i guess breathing lessons was a similar one uh, working with ideas of character but also placed in that one because if anyone's worked in a government agency it's sort of aggressively anti-humanistic but people keep showing up and ruining that and being kind and being beautiful
0: it was very funny actually yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, this is the thing I think the funniest thing about, I remember I used to have coffee drinking competitions at one of my government jobs with a guy called Peter. And so we'd have these mornings where we'd hit up like seven Nescafe Blend 43s and see who would fade or who would drop out or whatever. So there's (laughs) something about being in a particularly hopeless space that brings out the fun. It's very strange how that will happen. But...
0: Uh, Just while we're talking about breathing lessons, that was one of my favorite descriptions as well. I'm just going to read this section. You arrive at 7, card swipe and in through the front, up the lifts and on through the double sliding doors as the cleaners waltz around the empty cubicles. Loved that imagery. You (laughs) go to the gents at 7.05 and grab a coffee at 7.10, you are not exactly killing it. Your nipples show through your shirt, your shoes make farting noises when you walk, and your hair is problematic. It's buffy, unmanageable, part pillow and part brillo pad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the other thing about the workspace is that it's not a formal space in the nutritional sense. It's not like if you went to a glitzy bar and you see people styling up it's this strange cacophony of fashion and sort of making do and blending in, but no one's really that good at blending in, so you'll always see someone with a certain different pan approach. And there's also that nature of the recurring. So if someone has hair that's part pillow, part brillo pad, the first couple of times you let it slide, but after you've seen it like 37 times, it's embedded in there as a whole And then there's all those rituals of, you know, the biscuit tent and what's going to be in there and um, endless birthdays. You're constantly wishing someone happy birthday. And the song, unfortunately, over time gets a bit of this sort of tired lilt because there's only so many times you can do it and you're trying to keep hold on to that humanity. And yet these things keep bashing you around, like these intranets or these, uh, you know, sort of desk movements and uh, these announcements about a new OS or something like that. It's sort of, um, yeah, it's a strange place in which to spend one's life.
0: So I guess the challenge then is to take all of that experience that you might have had working in in that job, but you're honing in on that really specific detail and giving us that beautiful spare yet vivid description. And I love that. That was such a beautiful part of all of your stories, Laurie.
1: Thank you. Look, I think the other part of it is that, um, I mean, the nature of, you know, flow states and how we see the world. Ultimately, the first time we see something, we've taken all this data. But from that point on, we're dumbing it down. We're sort of using the bland version of that. So I know I'm acutely aware of wanting to bring it back to that first time first time you saw someone or the first time you tasted something and things like that. So the flow state is a big part of what I do. And uh, I also, my teacher in Iowa, Dr. Zizi Packer, her famous catchphrase was specificity is authenticity. So I always try and teach that to my writers too, is that if you're not, and her other favourite quote was, if you can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it and touch it, then it doesn't exist. And so I was really conscious of sensory information throughout the book. And um, in terms of full narrative immersion, it's vital. Like I can read a story, and I often do for competitions, where someone say, says a song was playing in the background. And my first thought is, what song? How could you not tell me what song's playing? Like that is, that's like narrative shorthand. I never want to know that someone was wearing shoes or that they had a sandwich. Like it just seems crazy not to anchor some more character information or plot development in the stuff that's going on or even reflect back their emotional state through the music that's on or the music they've chosen to listen to. So there are all these opportunities to deepen character. So I guess, to echo an earlier comment about where I start, I probably start and stay in character. I think it's so important because if stories are an empathy machine, and I believe they are, or an empathy app, then one needs to really anchor those characters to the point that they're familiar and almost real, almost tangible. Um, They're certainly tangible for me, and I spend a lot of time with them and getting to know them.
0: Was there one particular story that stood out for you in terms of being inspired? Like you, you became inspired, and then you sat down, and the story just flowed. Or do you, you're a bit more of a bowerbird, where you sort of collect all these little bits of inspiration, and and they may or may not become a story at some point.
1: Ironically, it was probably the um, the story I wrote first that's in the collection, and it also appears pretty early, which is the punch. And so I remember being on a tram and being overwhelmed with the sheer amount of information that was coming through and how many people were around. Because obviously I'm born in New Zealand, a small country town called Hamilton, and to Perth, bigger city, but I'd never really lived in a city like Melbourne or Sydney before. And so sitting on that tram, there just seemed to be so many lives happening in front of me. So the other thing that's interesting about my early stories is they were often triptychs. I would take three POVs, Paladin, Third, and see what was going on with them and what was happening with them. And so The Punch felt pretty inspired. And there's a funny story about its print publication prior to the book as well, which is that I was working with someone who edited a literary journal. And so I said to them, can you help me with the story? I'm going to submit it to this journal over in the West. If you could have a look at it, that would be great. And then I'll never forget it because she took the story and then she rang me. And she said, don't send it to that journal, we want it. And it was this most exciting thing. So I think sometimes those are the magic moments is when a story really comes and it flows out. Uh, But then as Jack Cornfield says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. And so what's funny with the punch is all those years later when I came back to it and wondered whether it could be included within this mix, it didn't really work in the world we're in now. And so I revisited the story, I changed the ending quite a lot Um, and I also worked around who was helping him in what ways in terms of his own understanding of things. So it was pretty and liberating to take a story about a guy feeling sorry for himself And change that to a story about a guy taking accountability and wanting to be a better person. Um, So that felt, it kind of inspired me both times, uh, which is pretty lucky. You're pretty lucky if a story can inspire you twice with 10 years between the two inspirations.
0: I loved that story. I, I found it inspiring too, but also really beautifully written. Oh, thank you
1: i mean I, I need to credit uh an editor who worked with me on you belong here and also read an early version of the collection had o'donnell because when she read the punch again she said and so to be clear the young boy who helps the contender in the final version was a, uh, a female student oh. uh, so she read that and she said look it's beautiful but why does it always have to be a girl and it was a really interesting wonderful thing that opened me up to this idea too. And I was conscious of this thing of like masculinity, finding tenderness in the feminine, uh, and I guess in females versus in the feminine. So that was a really great opportunity to go. If there was a young boy there who was older than his wiser, beyond his years, what would he look like? And um, I love him. He's one of my favourite characters in the whole book.
0: Me too.
1: Um, But he's not apologetically smart. And, you know, he's not a dick. He's not judgmental. He's just a young guy trying to make his way through the world.
0: Yeah. And he calls it like he sees it because he doesn't necessarily have that adult ability or the adult concern about saying the polite thing or the right thing. He's just saying the honest thing.
1: There's no need to yeah keep face or sort of work within agendas that might come into play at a later point he's presented with something in front of him and he calls it like it is and in doing so that lets the contender step into a new kind of vulnerability so quite the journey the uh, contender's been on over a 12 year period and he's hoping um that continues to be the case
0: well, it's quite the journey you take us, the reader, on in a <laughs> scant number of pages. Felt like I had almost read a whole novel and only seven pages or six pages or something.
1: Well, it was interesting what you said about trying to inhabit the short story form and working within those limitations. I do think POV is a big part of that too. And so that will guide who you're following and why quite often too, as so you sort of work out what your entry point is into the particular short story. So for a story like The Butterfly Fish, which is told in second, um, it's basically really important to challenge that protagonist because the protagonist knows his truth. So it's really vital to go in there and go, well, hey, what if you were the bad friend and all that kind of stuff that comes out through the story? Um, Breathing lessons is kind of the opposite of that in second person because the idea there was to take someone in the humdrum and go, what if the angels started singing? What if this was actually a really beautiful space in which you're in rather than the worst place in the world? And so that's second. And then I guess third person for me has always been the way in which to deal with heavier things or weighty subjects because they're inherently dramatic. They inherently have their own weight. So a story like The Crazy and The Brave, which I won't spoil, but the nature of what's going on with that story is so sort of heavy and full on that I knew I'd need a controlled distance with which to navigate that and underwrite it. So that's sort of being second and third. And then I guess um, as for why I write certain stories in first, that's, I guess, more of an empathy machine thing again. It's going, okay, this is a confessional space in which someone you would categorise as thus has the opportunity to go, well, actually, this is my fear or this is my worry or this is my greater need within the world. So, yeah, it's interesting to unpack all of that. And then sometimes you just write the story because you've got to write a story and you've got to get into a flow state. It's all very well to pontificate about my various POVs, but some of them I just wrote that way. So, like Blue Balloons is third and I don't really have a good reason why it's third. It just always was, um, even when it was a completely different type of story way, way back.
0: I'm so curious about the point of view. This was something I wanted to ask you about first, third, and second, because I love stories written in second person. I think the first one I read was uh, Nikki Gemmell uses second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Some of her novels. And I was curious to know whether you decide to use it, like if it's a really conscious decision or if it just comes in the writing. But, yeah, so that was a great answer. So, just to reiterate, first is for that confessional space. That's a great phrase, actually, the confessional space, and the confessional almost, tone, isn't it?
1: And if you imagine someone is existing in the sort of almost, the def- not the defensive state, but the as is, everything's fine kind of state in a first person, which usually starts that way. They'll sort of go, I think, to give an example, in all for love, he's like, you know, I'm an average kid, um i'm not rakish unless you mean in the way that i look like a rake and so this is sort of trivial kind of passing on of information but one of the joys of that is that by the end of the story you'll have gone really deep with that character so first person is a great way because we meet people in the first person they go hello i'm a doctor i'll be looking at your thing today and well not your thing that sounded a bit rude but you know what (laughs) i'm doing (laughs)
0: I know what you mean.
1: Um, So the the world is a first-person machine. We are in the first person. So to take that and go, hey, you know how you flipped that guy off at the intersection, there's another story. And it would be really interesting to see what that story was if they got to tell it in first. And I'd imagine initially it would be quite protective and quite conservative. But if you spend enough time with someone they will start to open up and you'll learn more about them. So typically my first-person stories are the ones that most end up with like a lorry character date in a park where I'll sit with them and ask them questions and things like that, or I'll go to a library and ask them what their favourite books are. So that's the other thing with me and character is that I take it way too seriously and have copious notes and all kinds of background stuff, some of which never comes into play. I was lucky that in... You belong here. The fact that Jay loved Lionel Richie was a pivotal part of the narrative, but there'd be another character somewhere who, I don't know, loves Joan Arma trading and it won't come up within the work. So, yeah, it sort of just depends on the story and how it's being shaped.
0: Yeah, and, and making sure that it is relevant. like like they say, uh, to character development or plot development or to the narrative arc or whatever.
1: You you mentioned sort of the slimness of the volume. Um, That's a bit of a running joke in WA in particular. Uh, My friend Michael Tramp, who writes uh, much bigger novels uh, in the crime field, he apparently has a post-it note that says, would Laurie cut this? on his desk. So <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, I am the voice of sparse prose or certainly finding the right sentences that work and cutting back from there. Mm.
0: What would Laurie do? I think maybe we should all have a little sticky, <laughs> sticky note. Above the our whole desk.
1: Movement. Yeah. <laughs> would know. Laurie
0: cut this? Yes, probably. <laughs> the answer is probably yes. <laughs> yes is. So with third person.
1: Because I'm an emotionally kind of intense person by nature uh third person basically creates a controlled distance for me to look at heavier things quite often so if we're dealing with like grief or loss or anything that's sort of big picture confronting uh, third person is an opportunity to me to sort of fall back into i guess the history of fiction because it's quite a common uh Mm. and so i'm able to be the storyteller almost the um, objective journalist witnessing what's occurring within that. So it's kind of like a John Hersey, Hiroshima thing, where by writing in the way he writes it, you're able to look at full on things, but give them the necessary distance. And yeah, it's, it's really just like reporting on a story in third. And so I find that quite liberating in the sense that so much of my second person stories and to a lesser extent, the first person stories, the main question someone asks, if they want to be critical about it, is, why do that? Why would you even do that in the first place? Or is it very hard if you read a third person story to go, why did you do that? Why did you take the history of fiction and replicate a similar format? So it's about as conservative as I get. I know that on some level, some stories are just best told by a, by the fireside, you know, in a very sort of recollective way, um, and I think it then means I can just underwrite what would otherwise be really intense, dramatic moments. I know that's to my detriment as a commercially sort of marketable commodity. But as a storyteller and a human being, I just think it gives the necessary sort of dignity of what we're talking about. And it's not exploitative. It just says, hey, this was a full on thing this person was going through. Feel for them. Mm. Not use this as a tool, but actually let's get human with what they were going through and honour knowledge their emotional complexity in such a space.
0: And then tell, talk to me again about second person because you don't just use it in that one story in The Butterfly ah. Fish. You use it a few times, which I was <laughs> delighted
1: about. <laughs> stories I do, yeah, I know. It's a-
0: but I'm so curious about that because I have written in second person before and I was told that, it can distance the reader because you're saying you. Whereas for me, when I read second person, I am the you. So that, to me, it draws me f- further into the story.
1: Yeah. Well, there's two yous. And so that's where the, I love it because of the malleability of that. So I remember reading, um, I think it was, gosh, now I'm trying to think which book it was. It was a book of Chuck Palahniuk's a long time ago that was told in second person. And the second person was the protagonist. And I was really impressed by the usage of that second person. And the protagonist was in a coma, so they were in a stuck state. And so this writer was just going to town on this protagonist. Now, I'm not Chuck Palahniuk. I don't have quite that level of intense sort of uh, aggression within my prose. So for me, the second person is an interesting space because it can be interrogative as in almost I'm the you. So like the right the story is talking to me and a story like the butterfly fish um whereas in a story like breathing lessons um i feel like that's the point of a story like that is to take the you or whoever is out there as the you and bring them wholly into that space so i can see what people say about distancing because it acknowledges the communicative methods of storytelling it says this is a story and you're here and and so you're either taking the viewpoint of the protagonist of they're being addressed or the you as you. Um, it's one of those ones that if I did pull it off in Greater City Shadows, I'm deeply proud because I know how incredibly hard it is to do well. So... Um,
0: well, you did because... Oh, thank you. <laughs> the, the, two, <laughs> the two criteria for me is do I, after a while, I don't see the you at yeah. all. I'm just yeah. reading the story and that's, that happens pretty quickly. I mean, maybe just because I'm looking for the you. I, that's why, I, because I'm obsessed with with it when I see it in fiction. Um, but the other thing that made me know that it's working is because I become the you. Like, to me, it's a, I feel melded with the writer. Like, I feel that we are one when I read that.
1: Yeah, look, I really appreciate that. And um Another story, which is further back in the collection, which is Great Southern Scotoma, that was originally a 1,000 Miles, and that's told in second too. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what it can do as well is it can really challenge a character in terms of their reality. So one of uh, my friend's favourite comments is people are deeply invested in their reality, and I guess it's saying that some people don't actually want you to poke and prod. I'm really interested in doing that, period. Mm-hmm. Uh as much as anyone else and so i think it's really interesting to sort of cast a play on a stage and then go i bet you thought that person was that Uh, and then go well what if they were that and then go what if they were both Um, and that's usually where a second person confronting story ends with me it's that hey how are we going to deal with this reality that in fact both things can be true Uh, and the complexity of the overall experience can't really be anchored in a third person as well. Uh, It needs you to be in the driver's seat and be taking those turns with the character and wondering what you would do in the same scenario. So I think the other thing that's worth talking about is that as a child I grew up with Choose Your Own Adventure books and so I'm acutely aware of that idea of choice and how one's perceiving something and things like that. So maybe in some weird way, Although the endings are predefined, some of my stories are kind of like a choose your own adventure. What would you do if you were the you? Would you have done things differently? Do you judge this character or do you feel great, you know, empathy and identification with that character?
0: I'd like to read a little section from just to give the listeners a taste of what we're talking about.
1: I actually had a little bit from All for Love.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Read that. Yeah.
1: yeah, I kind of. So the character's called Michael, but he dreams of being called Biv because he thinks that's cool. Uh, so anyway, basically he has a girl he really likes at school and um, it's in the lead up to the big, well, ball or prom, or even just social, It's says social. What happened for the next three weeks? Absolutely nothing. Well, okay, not nothing. Alice asked Brendan if he had an eraser, but he didn't, and for the next day he was inconsolable. Holly asked me if I was going to Taryn's party, but I didn't know who Taryn was, so I said definitely. I still don't know who Taryn is. I think she does metalwork. Or maybe cooking? Ah, shit, I don't know. And then one day it's here, the big night. We pick up Brennan, and Mum's driving super slow, full daisy speed, and she says, you guys are going to have the best time. The social is bumping by the time we arrive. Brennan motions to the vending machines, and I nod. We stand side on. He's asking, what are we doing? And I'm saying, I don't know. And then we turn back to the centre of the room. A couple of duds, breaking the girl, an achy, breaky heart. And then the drums of, boom, ba of Would I lie-, lie to You hits. And Brennan jumps. And I'm in jumps on the spot. Yes. Come on, man. Let's dance. Beautiful. So, yeah, I think one of those um, It's funny. Like I, was, I had to make a soundtrack up, like a playlist for Grey City Shadows, and there's one song that's not on the playlist called Joy by Bastille, and I guess that's because it came out more recently. But it's interesting, whenever I dive back into this book, I just feel this joy and, like, wow, what a life. It's You know, that we're sort of leading here. We, we're we in this space of great wonder all the time, and we're mm. so busy looking at a point in the distance that we forget to look around. You know, I don't want to get all Neil Donald Walsh on you or anything. I, I guess I'm just being honest. Like, as human beings, we have this crappy tendency not to look around enough and not to be struck with awe and wonder at the people we've chosen to love and the things we've found meaning in.
0: Yeah. What is it about that little section that you just read that really stands out for you?
1: I guess getting back to character again. And I think one of the things that is done in YA a lot, but not necessarily in adult fiction, is honouring what it's like to be a teenager and those moments where you're really invested in quite a beautiful way in all kinds of stuff. And you're also super awkward. So it seems like one of the great cosmic jokes that you would have all these things you wanna do and these dreams and be so dorky and so sort of living within an awkward space. So I, you know, to me, um, Linda Barry, who's wonderful, she has this talk about a classmate Um, and like a monologue about a classmate she had in school. And she brings it to life so wonderfully. And so there's something I think, because you're so self-obsessed in school and so worried about that stuff, in honoring the people that were around you at the same time, and in seeing that there's this great cosmic connection of awkwardness and dorkiness um, Mm -hmm. from that age space. So that's the kind of wonderful thing. I remember when I was shortlisted for the Dorothy Hewitt for Greater City Shadows. I had this moment where I decided I'd meditate because the shortlisting was taking a long time. And um, I had closed my eyes and I went, oh, Laurie, you're so excited and you're really hoping that you're going to win this prize. And then the camera sort of zoomed back and I saw all six of us in the cosmos like sitting there and I was like, oh, wow, you're all so excited and you're all hoping you're going to win this prize. So I think that interconnectivity stuff is a big thing for me. It either means I'm losing my mind or it means I'm getting closer to the true meaning of life. I can't tell you which it is. but yeah, this book for me was a really a way to honor that interconnectivity and um, yeah, the good people of this world and what they bring in and um, even that tendency or that ability of connection, things you share in common, but also Laughter and silly things that can happen within that. So one of my favorites didn't make it into the book because it is fiction, but it's a true story is that um, me and my sister were sitting in our family's star wagon when I was about oh, about eight years old, and we were waiting for my father to come back so he could drive us somewhere. And we turned to each other and we both sang, "I need a hero <laughs> from Bonnie Tyler's <laughs> holding up for a hero. and it was just the most wonderful thing that we and we both went, ah. Yeah, so I don't I'm, know. I'm just
0: picturing your adult selves now. Whenever you see I'm each other, yeah,
1: yeah. And I, look, I'm not suggesting that Bonnie Tyler is a divine being, uh, but I am suggesting that that's exactly the song that came at that exact moment, which I'll is tell pretty you wonderful.
0: What, on a mum's night out at about midnight in somebody's kitchen, Bonnie Tyler is uh, she's a holy being. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, there's, and there is such authenticity in a song like Holding Out for a Hero. It's not like Bonnie Tyler phones it in on that song. She's really belting it out. She really is. <laughs> I mean, something really impressive about that too. It's a Bill Hicks quote. He's talking about New Kids on the Block, and then he says, oh, you know, people come up to me to say, oh, the New Kids, they're so great. New Kids are so wonderful. And he goes, play with your heart. <laughs> so if I have one fault, and I probably have a bunch, it's that I very much play with my heart uh, in any of the stories I write.
0: I do love all the musical references in the stories, and that's <laughs> I, I'm thrilled to hear that there's a playlist. Oh, well, thank maybe. you. Yeah, well,
1: I'd love you to check it out. I did
0: not know that. I'm no, definitely a- going to be subscribing. Is that on Spotify?
1: That is on Spotify, Greater City Shadows Playlist. Oh. We'll be putting
0: that um, in the
1: show notes, people. So a wonderful. Well, even the most beautiful thing about the playlist is that I was curating it and getting it together and thinking about what songs were the best to have in there. And then I edited that and I was like, actually, you know what? I don't like where that playlist ends. I want to end it on a different note. And so it's kind of fun to play with that kind of stuff. And then the other joy about doing the playlist is that one really beautiful thing happened. Uh, a friend of mine created a playlist called Believer uh, while I was working on the book and the book was struggling and I was heading all kinds of weird walls and not being able to get this book out into the world. And so that informs the Great City Shadows playlist too. It's pretty cool when someone sits down and creates a playlist called Believer filled with inspiring, cathartic and um, empathic songs for you. That's about as cool as life gets. So That is
0: very, very cool. The other thing I loved about that passage that you just read is it really demonstrates your skill with dialogue. I, I felt think. like in every story, you just nailed it every time, telling us so much <laughs> about character and how they speak and their word choices. So well, what, one of
1: my favorite characters in the whole book um, from Blue Balloons, because I just love her kind of no bullshit attitude to life. So I is that of- Joe? yeah joe yes um,
0: she was I my love. favorite oh just got one of my favorites but yeah yeah.
1: there's something about joe that's really lovable and and defiantly australian too i yeah. think um everyone could do with joe in their life
0: yeah just she's got the heart and yeah and the no bullshitometer.
1: yeah and the, and the fun too like she's just and hilarious fun. i love that line because obviously bex and someone else who read bex in an earlier when they were reading the collection they're like Bex, man, because there's always those people, too, that are Bex-like that seem to have it together and they're just pristine and they just don't. They There's a lot of them, actually. So I often feel like the minority are the people who struggle, but that's probably not true. And I don't want to diss people who are pristine like Bex, but I do love that Joe says Bex is sus. I just think that's such yeah. a funny line. Just going oh, out. let's read that section. Uh,
0: sure, that I'd section?
1: love to. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll read this section. Uh, it's from the story Blue Balloons. And Bex, said Joe, you ever learned to love dear, dopey Bex? She hadn't. And it wasn't Bex's fault, although she was annoying. Short but somehow still tousled hair, skinny jeans and white lacy tops that always looked good. I could never be Bex, said Helen. That's true, said Joe. She's organised and she's never late. Hey, shut up. I'm kidding. You rock. Bex is sus. I don't trust anyone who's that nice. Helen laughed. Thanks, mate. Anytime, said Joe. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't even be making films. We'd be stacking shelves or selling port to smelly old bastards with stories that don't go anywhere fast. We have like three hundred followers. Well, Van Gogh had none, said Joe. And you're better. It's this thing, like you're writing cycles or some boolean data type. It's mad. Can you even imagine how cool our next film's gonna be? And Helen could, and a tiny part of her grew wings at the thought of that. But still. So much of her felt a kinship with what was and what used to be.
0: Oh, I love that passage. Thank
1: so <laughs> Yeah, I have a, a very soft spot in my heart for blue balloons. It's uh, yeah, it's
0: but cool. also Helen. Yeah, and Helen could, and a tiny part of her grew wings at the thought of that. Just yeah. imagining, <laughs> and it's like this. Like I was reading things into all of your stories, Laurie. I okay. was like, yeah. okay, well. Laurie's just using filmmaking for novel writing and short story (laughs) writing here, and there's this story about the artist. Well, that's clearly also just, you know, (laughs) about writing deep down.
1: (laughs) One of the things that did happen is that when you're taking, when you really do find resistance with a particular book, it's ironic that, or it's kind of spooky, how often sort of ideas of creativity and expression pop up within the work, and so these wings that they that Helen finds, like how important they are, like these little moments where the artist goes, oh, it's okay, I'll get there, I'll keep going. And yeah. so one of the other things that sort of the material world doesn't always get with writers is how many moments where one feels like one is teetering or about to fall down, one steadies and goes again. And so certainly uh, Blue Balloons and The Crazy and the Brave and my love letters to writers, artists, anyone creative, because there's yeah. so many reasons why you shouldn't do it or you can't do it or why it's hard to do it, and yet there's so much courage in the space. I mean, even in the space of submission, knowing you might not get a response or you'll get a rude response or all these things. So I was acutely aware of how much I love writers, period, anyway, uh, when I was working on this book. And um, particularly, there's this other strange paradox, certainly working within teaching writing, is that some of the best writers I've met don't think they're very good. And so I kind of wanted to honor that too. That actually, if you're thinking a lot about whether your writing's any good, you're probably a better writer to start with because you're already examining whether your work is worth. Being out there in the first place, mm. so that's sort of, I guess, the genesis of a character like Jean Bell, who I really wish was a real person. I sort of <laughs> I fell in love with her too, and I'm like, wow. And I kind of, she kind of is a real person. She's just scattered out around the world in various creatives. It's just, um, yeah, that was a joy to create her work and think about what she wanted to say and why.
0: So dialogue is obviously pretty important in your stories, Laurie, yeah. but how do you go about getting dialogue on the page and making it work? So hard to do, isn't it? Especially, mm-hmm. I would imagine, in short stories. Um, I
1: certainly, another lesson I got passed down was to imagine that every line of dialogue a $1,000. Uh, and once I knew that, I was much more sparse with what I was saying and how quickly I had to communicate things. And I guess the other thing I really use dialogue for is character definition. And so I think it's a wonderful space to choose what words they use and the way they talk in varying sort of lengths. And I think the other thing that happens a lot is people don't say what they mean. And so I can use subtext a lot as well and that kind of stuff. Um, so dialogue to me is a depth thing more than anything else. I think people forget there are those three motivations where you go, okay, I'm using it to develop character or I'm using it to accelerate the plot or increase tension. And those are three wonderful things. But it's such a wonderful place to confront a character's lies about themselves or about someone else as well. And it's such a wonderful space for people who don't know how to say I love you to say I love you in the weird words they do. So Joe is probably an anomaly in the book in that she's so clearly able to sort of really articulate how she feels. And I guess, um, you know, that is a rarity in the book and that most of them, it's kind of love languages that are almost a foreign language and they're trying to get their head around how they actually, you know, say what they mean.
0: There's a great example of that in Hannah's Star Party.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And the, the, probably the, my most fun story to write. I remember working on Hannah's Star Party and just having a ball... Um, with the characters and the way they talk to each other, and the youngest character, Zach, really, over time became just so much fun to write. And um, you know, there's a I guess if there is a character informed by my own life in there, I guess Zach is very much informed by raising two young boys because there's so many funny moments and there's so yeah. much. Different. And I guess the other character that's pretty good, even though he's pretty out there at articulating what he wants in the world is Adam Eisenberg. He's kind of a lost soul in Shotgun, but he's actually pretty clear on what he wants to do. It's just he hasn't worked out how on earth he would get that to happen or even to be under, he he never sort of dreams, he dreams that one day someone will get him and see what he really wants and what he's really about, but he's also kind of a bit scattered and all over the place. So Mm -hmm. it's funny, these characters, they kind of start off about, six feet underground I think that's the other thing about my characters I write for people who didn't get a good start like and they're trying to make sense of what's happened since so that's one of the joys of why I write is that I know that there will be people who get it will probably have been through some things in their life Mm -hmm. and have sort of thought about how do I exist in the world how should I treat people things like that
0: now Laurie we've touched on the editing but Tell us about the editing process for this collection. Have you got any good editing stories to tell us?
1: Oh, it was a wonderful process. I very much enjoyed it. I kind of had two processes. So I was lucky enough to secure funding support from the DLGSC here in Western Australia to work with Amanda Curtin earlier in the the process uh, on those collections. And bless her heart, she was dealing with a very different collection at that point. So it was called Nova, as I say, and it had a letter starting the collection and a letter ending the collection that was addressed. And there's some wonderful stuff. It did actually echo out. um, So what was beautiful about that time as well, and those letters, is that uh, Melbourne artist, Lisa Seawoods asked if I had anything on the way after You Belong Here, and I had this manuscript. So she read it and she made artwork out of the story. So she did a number of the stories as artwork. And there's a line from the letter that's not in the book anymore, which is, uh, and I miss you, And I love you, and I'm with you every day. And that's one of the artworks she created. So it's pretty special uh, what she did, and that became part of an exhibit called Short Stories. Uh, And then, I guess, the editing after that. Actually, I do have a very cool story about those artworks, if you're happy for me to share it.
0: Yeah.
1: So she has this exhibit, and Lisa clearly has a better financial approach to her art than most writers, um, but deserves it because they're wonderful paintings. So there was one that she did for the butterfly fish, which was simply stunning. And my wife contacted her after the exhibition and said, look, I was thinking of buying the butterfly fish. Do you think that's possible? And she said, well, one, it's sold and two, it sold for like $3,500. It's wonderful. This incredible painting. So at that point there was, you know, a bit like, oh, okay, that's fine. Thanks anyway. But Lisa had done two paintings for the butterfly fish. And she had a second one that wasn't part of the sale or the exhibit at all, and she sent that to me uh, gratis. Oh, and now So that was pretty special. And then, um, yeah, the editing uh, with Kirsty as well, uh, who was a contractor by UWAP, was just incredible, and she seemed to get the work inherently, which was really helpful. There wasn't anything that needed to be shifted in any great way. It was more just keeping an eye on certain thematic threads certain inconsistencies, Um, and that's usually the nuts and bolts stuff is when you sort of say, okay, are we spelling an edema right and all this kind of stuff through that. So to be guided by, yeah, Kate Picard and the team at UWAP and also have um, someone like Kirsty in the room editing the work, it just sort of, as I say, there weren't many mega changes because I'd spent so much time changing them before that point. So the only other thing that's kind of crazy about the edits, obviously, um, so the, I guess you'd call it like a little very short story, Reflections on a Ghost Story, that also came right at the end. So there was some suggestion that awful Love was a wonderful story, but that it didn't, there was just something out with it and we couldn't really work out what it was. And so I kind of sat in a space of complexity and, I, you know, part of me wishes it wasn't there in the sense that it does kind of create a fourth wall break, but I also think it was okay to kind of let that story run a little yeah. bit longer. Um, and then the other thing that's really interesting is that the story, The Crazy and the Brave, believe it or not, actually had the guy as almost an active sort of disruptor and he was going to do something crazy at that particular art show, um, Sculptures by the Sea. And it was gonna culminate with something quite dramatic. And then what was really funny again, and this is probably a lesson from a number of editors I work with, is that while, you know, there's this idea, um, I think it's Chandler who said, you know, when in doubt, have two guys into the room with guns. In my case, whenever two guys enter the room with guns, they've probably got like a secret longing that they're not talking about. And so the more I sit with these stories, I find these incredible emotional cores. Even if they started with guns, they usually end up anchoring back to um, greater humanity and and connection and compassion. So, yeah, quite the journey, putting it all together. Um, And it's kind of crazy that it's there now. I I worked on it for a long time and, um, it's, yeah, it's probably as close as I can get to something that I can look at and go, yeah, "Yeah, I'm happy with that. That worked out the way I wanted it to.
0: So which story came most easily and which was the most challenging for you and why? That's
1: a good question. I guess the one that came easiest was actually the heart and the moose. uh, I'm not really sure why I think, because it was anchored in place, more than character, yeah. more than characters showed up. So there, there was a real retro Betty's, which is this burger joint that was an a leader ball that had that whole 50s throwback thing. Um, and I was conscious of having grown up in a time of great entrepreneurial spirit as well in the 80s. Like everyone had a side hustle and they were kind of working. Like they actually had these things like sunglasses or sun cream or whatever it was. And that was what they did. So that kind of came together well. The ending was really hard to write, but mostly the story came together pretty well. And the other one that flowed out of me was Wait For Me, um, because it was just so anchored in uh, the song itself. And I had full freedom to make up a town where he lived and full freedom to play with how a public figure is perceived and what they're really like Mm. Um, and also that someone could be a pain in the ass, but also be quite a nice person. Um, As for what was the most difficult, look, I guess I'd probably say a story like Great Southern Scotoma or even Two Part Lullaby because they don't, Great Southern Scotoma is just like to deal with legacy and to really unpack what one learns while in the childhood home. It's very tough to give an answer that works unless it's missing stuff. So I know in my own experience, that's why Great Southern Scotoma was a hard story to write. So originally it was more one-sided story from the protagonist's point of view. And then it struck me that there are two stories in those sort of situations. There's a story from the person who was looking after the person and the story from the person who was being looked after. So that was the hardest one for me to know where I wanted to go in the middle of the story. I knew where I started and I knew where I ended and yet there was this kind of contested history in the middle there and I guess I wanted to honour this idea that a challenging family is challenging for most parties that are in the family. (laughs) there are a lot of unmet needs for whatever reason in that space and that sometimes you show up and you work through it for the betterment of the situation um but then it took
0: you a while to get to that did it
1: well the the younger characters too and i I don't know if i was in that story at the age i'm at now whether i would have done it the same way uh character did it so that's interesting in itself um and then placement is always so hard because you've got to work out what you start with what you end with um and i was always conscious that the crazy and the brave had such weight to it yeah. that it's probably going to end up somewhere towards the back because of what it was dealing with but then the ending of it seemed to work to close it out and i had other endings and they all dropped off so there was always one story after it and it never stayed and interestingly enough that's a long story and all the stories I had after it were super short, like, and by the way, this was what I was trying to say. And that's really interesting because when I went to Iowa with the story, of the knife, which is part of You Belong Here, I had a coda, and Zizi sat me down and she said, this story's okay. And I was like, okay, I don't want the story to be okay. And she said, this coda, you're telling me what the story's about. Like you're you're not trusting that the work is going to be done within the story. And so I thought about that a lot with Crazy and the Brave. I thought, actually, the Crazy and the Brave is the perfect way to end it because it doesn't tell you what to think. It just says, and that's the end of this.
0: For people that don't know, what's a coda, Laurie?
1: Oh, so a coda is like an end sort of basically in commentary or anything really that comes after the main body. Um, and so it could you could see that as an epilogue and things like that. I mean, in fiction... Especially in short stories, it would be weird to write a prologue and an epilogue because they're not fully connected. Um, And for whatever reason, Greater City Shadows, its journey, its sort of metamorphosis, was from a place of feeling like I needed a beginning point and an end point to gradually giving way that the opening story will be the first commentary on things and that the final story will close a door Um, And I think in some weird way that works much better. I don't pretend to understand it. So the other thing I found while working with Greater City Shadows and certainly the new novel I'm working on is that intuition is now king. So if my gut tells me I should do something, I do it. I don't question it. And there's great freedom in that because for so long I had like this sort of Like, you know, the two guys in the Muppets that used to sit up in the rafters and this everything? I had them there and they were a pain to work with. So to actually go, you got this. Like, for better or worse, whatever anyone does make of it once it's out in the world, you've made the right call. was really exciting too. And that's some advice I'd pass on to writers, that there's a point of learning about your craft for a while, but then at some point you're the craft. So you don't necessarily need guidance to the point that you're not enough, you are enough and you'll work it out and you'll get it right.
0: Mm. Laurie, you're a writing mentor, a writing teacher. You've judged many competitions. Now you're highly active in the writing community over in Perth and I would Everyone in other states seems to know who you are. Everyone <laughs> I talk to, you, oh Maurice yeah, he helped me oh, with really? this. People know who you are, of <laughs> which to say that you have so much experience with writing and teaching writing. I would love to, to just get your big tips for writers who are attempting short stories because they have to do so much, don't they, in terms of character arc and the narrative arc. You've got small amount of space to really pack a big punch. What are your big tips?
1: I mean, I'd definitely encourage them to start with action. So start moving the moment you hit the story. Uh, I'd also encourage them to know that it's a moment, to be acutely aware that an ending in a short story will literally end the moment, not the narrative, and you're fine to do that. It's okay to do that. And the other thing I'd encourage them to do is whatever crazy idea they have, to try it because short stories are one of the few forms where you can actually, it's a very strange relationship where if you pull it off, all the other rules don't matter. Like Jennifer Egan did obviously a story in a PowerPoint for a visit from the Goon Squad. Later on, she did a story as a shopping list. Uh, My friend Ryan's amazing at doing a story through graphs or things like that. So what a cool thing to play with, where if I tell a story backwards, like I do with still life, and I pull it off, that's okay, that you can do that. And if I want to tell a story about a fish that, you know, is in the Swan River, I can because I just need to make sure it's a good story and then the rules are different. So a short story is probably one of the few sort of evolving art forms where you just continually see a writer do something that hasn't been done before and the rules have changed and you can do that. So... I would encourage them to be brave. I read a lot of good stories that are well-executed, but they're not knock it out of the park. The world needs more people to take huge risks in that form. Make sure it's polished and executed well, but take a risk with your character. Like, choose a third option for them as to how they're going to turn out and why, and be prepared to surprise yourself and the reader because that's how great short fiction is made.
0: With those words of wisdom, Laurie. Thank you so much. I loved all of that advice. Um, oh, great talking with is, you. This has been such a great conversation, just packed full of fabulous advice for writers. I, I know I'm going to get a lot of great feedback on this one. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Michelle. I'll come back anytime you want me and um, it's been an utter joy to talk with you about it.
0: And one of these days we must meet in person. I would love that
1: too. Thanks, Michelle.
0: There you go, that was the incredible Laurie Steed. So much wisdom on the craft of writing from that man. Go follow him on his website at lauriesteed.com. He's got some fabulous resources on there. He also does a lot of mentoring of writers and has some courses, which hopefully he will open up again this year. So keep an eye out for that. He does have a newsletter that you can subscribe to. So I recommend subscribing to that so you can keep up to date with what courses he's offering on writing. All the links that were mentioned in today's episode, including where to buy Laurie's books, uh, the Spotify playlist he mentioned, and those Anthony Doer books are all in the show notes. Now to my next guest, Suzanne Leal is coming on the podcast, and I'm so excited. She is a writer of many, many talents. She has five books under her belt, including The Teacher's Secret, The Deceptions and her latest novel, The Watchful Wife. Now, many of you will no doubt know Suzanne from the very many writers festival panels she's facilitated. She's so in demand because she's such a good interviewer. No pressure. Go easy on me, Suzanne. Whenever I catch up with Suzanne, we always have really wonderful, honest chats about writing, and she's so insightful on the craft side of things, but also the business side of writing. So I'm going to be talking to her about that. We're going to be doing a deep dive into her new novel, The Watchful Wife. Now, this is definitely one you're going to want to read, especially if you like a bit of a psychological whodunit, and it is so beautifully written. Let me tell you what it's about. Raised by her severe parents in a punitive and authoritarian church, Ellen's narrow world is upended when she meets Gordon, a fellow teacher. Ellen is both transformed and beguiled by the connection, love and laughter that he brings into her life. When Gordon is accused of a shocking crime, Ellen steadfastly refuses to believe Gordon has done anything wrong. Abandoned and reviled by those around her, she will have to fight to protect him. But what will that cost her? And what will she discover about him along the way? This was such a page turner. I messaged Suzanne when I finished and said I couldn't put it down. It was just so good. The review in The Australian said, Suzanne Leal is a strong voice on the literary scene. In The Watchful Wife, Leal handles complex themes of justice, trust, and power delicately and convincingly. And I think this is so important because Suzanne is also a lawyer, and she's done a lot of work in human rights, and she just brings so much intelligence and knowledge to the page. It's brilliant. Books and Publishing said, nothing can prepare you for the final pages. It's only in retrospect when you're wowed by the final sparkling plot twist that you realize how masterfully the author has manipulated her audience. And you can bet I'm going to be asking Suzanne about that final sparkling plot twist because it's just brilliant and so satisfying. So grab a copy of The Watchful Wife wherever you buy or borrow your books, have a read and send in your writing questions for Suzanne. So the way to do that is you can send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook, or there's a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I love getting your questions and incorporating them into the interview. And it's a great opportunity to give you a little shout out in the podcast. So send them over in the next couple of weeks after you've read the book and I will put them in the interview. As always, I'm giving away a copy of this month's book with thanks to Alan and Unwin. So if you want to be in with a chance to win a copy of The Watchful Wife, all you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter and you'll go in the running to win. You'll find the sign up over at writersbookclubpodcast.com or michellebarakoff.com and all the details for the giveaway are over on Instagram and Facebook. And of course, if you already subscribe to my newsletter, don't worry, everyone's included in the draw. Okay. I think that's it for this month. If you are enjoying the podcast, I'd love it. If you'd leave a rating and review over on Apple podcasts or a rating on Spotify, it's easy to do. And you'd absolutely make my day. Thank you to all the beautiful listeners who've already left gorgeous reviews. I'm recording on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garrigal people of the Eora Nation where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you're listening. I look forward to catching up with you next month. Until then, happy writing.